Good morning, church family. Good morning. Good morning. I want to welcome everybody here today to our regular attenders. Thank you very much. Those who are visiting, we're honored to have you. We hope you come back. If you're watching or listening online, we're also glad to have you join us this morning. Psychology Today, a number of years ago, asked its readers if they would respond to the question of what makes you happy. Approximately 50,000 households returned the survey. As a rule, people generally answered with something in terms of their material possessions or goods. People said, if I win the lottery, that would make me happy. If I can get the raise, that would make me happy. If I can have a new home, that would make me happy. If I could get the uh, new house, whatever it might be. Some people actually were confused in terms of whether or not they were even happy. happy. One respondent said, I have listed below the reasons I think I am happy. Please confirm. But the theme here for most of us, and this would certainly be true for me if I'm not very careful, is that most of us would say what happens to us is how we would define happiness. What happens to my family? What happens to my friends? What happens to my health? What happens to my investments? What happens to my job? You fill in the blank. Happiness for most people is tied to the horizontal rather than the vertical. Did you catch that? Happiness for most people is tied to the horizontal rather than the vertical. We're going into the Christmas season, and I think possibly this season, better, better than any other season, demonstrates the reality of that truth. What are we doing? We're at the malls. We're Black Friday shopping. We're scouring the internet on Cyber Monday. We're trying to budget for Christmas, get the gifts, equalize gifts given among family to the degree of their separation from us, right? Well, you're my second cousin, twice removed, here's a pack of gum. And so we come up with these elaborate schemes to make sure that our Christmas logarithmic calculations make sure that everybody gets what's rightfully theirs. And it completely takes the vertical focus out of the holiday season itself, the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When we look in the scriptures, there is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church plant in the city of Philippi that he loves very dearly. So dearly, in fact, that rather than uh, elicit his own apostleship in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is how he begins a majority of his letters, he refers to himself as a slave, almost renouncing any of his rights as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a letter, the letter written to the church at Philippi, where the apostle Paul writes some of his most intimate and vulnerable teaching given in Scripture. Of particular importance in this letter is the subject of joy. And who better than the Apostle Paul to admonish that church and us today how to really maintain a sense and spirit of joy despite circumstance. This, I would, I would conjecture, is the focus of Paul's letter to the Philippian church. And what better to do than to read a letter that focuses on joy and how to maintain a vertical sense of joy despite our horizontal context than this particular letter. So our goal today would be to learn from the Apostle Paul's teaching to the church at Philippi in the second chapter how we can maintain a vertical focus rather than a horizontal focus, not just to have joy this Christmas, but to live out holiday joy every day of our lives, not over the Christmas season or simply at the beginning of the year, but throughout the year and throughout all of our lives. I'm going to focus on two ways this morning that the Apostle Paul tells us 
will be able to maintain a vertical focus rather than a horizontal one. So if you would, turn with me in your Bible to Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to start reading in verse 1. This first section of Scripture, the Apostle Paul teaches us how to maintain joy in our being. The Bible records this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Don't look to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. There are a couple of things that the Apostle Paul mentions here that are worth bearing in mind as we consider how to maintain joy in our being and have holiday joy every day. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, There are naturally flowing with our unity in Christ a few emotional experiences that should be standard procedure for the Christian. What does he say first? If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. How would I define encouragement? I would define encouragement as feeling confident, supported, or hopeful. In his letter to the church at Thessalonica in Thessalonians chapter 1, chapter 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2, the Bible says this. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen you and encourage you in the faith. So here's a scriptural precedent for a person being an encourager of another person. Let me give you a personal illustration from my life. Once I was in inpatient hospital treatment in a psychiatric unit. Now you're out there and you're looking at me and you're saying, Trent, there's no way you've ever had any mental health struggle. I mean, you're handsome, you're tall, you're athletic, you're funny. You're well-educated. Like, how is that even possible? Well, I can assure you, church, that before Christ, my mental health problems were the least of my problems. Can I get an amen from any, any of y'all out there that are like me? So in the, in, the, in, the, in the inpatient treatment unit where I was at, it was actually Baptist Hospital in Little Rock. Uh, you know, some of the things I would deal with, the lights inside the unit would flicker. And I, and I wondered, and I seriously wondered, and you either laugh at this or you cry, should I tell anybody I saw the lights flicker? Because if they didn't, they might try to increase my medication. <laughs> and so it was like this constant second guessing of me. And to say I was lonely and miserable and felt isolated and defeated would have been the understatement of the century. I was down in a deep, dark pit. 
Woke up one morning and I saw a good friend of mine from the area who was also at that same treatment center. And just his physical presence of being there made me feel encouraged. Now certainly that's not the place you want to run into old friends. But to have him there and to know that there was someone there who was familiar, who was with me, who could stand by me, who could go through the storm I was living in right alongside me, that was cause for hope and a little bit more confidence begin to well up inside me. And church, if you're united with the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've been immersed into Christ, if you've obeyed the gospel, then you are never, ever alone. There's no valley so dark that the Lord Jesus Christ does not walk right alongside you. David, the writer of the 23rd Psalm, put it like this, even if I find myself walking through the valley of death's shadow, I don't have to fear because I know God is with me. And some of us walk around as Christians with this bah humbug attitude as if our unity in Christ Jesus is not cause for confidence and encouragement and celebration. And as we go about living through the holiday season and, and living the rest of our lives into next year, our mindfulness of our relationship with Christ and our unity with Him through our obedience in the gospel should be cause for confidence, support, and hope. What else does the Apostle Paul say in Philippians 2.1? As a result of our unity in Christ, there should be comfort from His love. Comforts physical ease, freedom from pain or constraint, and consolation for grief or anxiety. Quite frankly, to be comforted means somebody is trying to make you a little bit happier. Now, I want you to raise your hand. I want to do a quick survey. If you are a parent or have ever been a parent of small children, just a quick show of hands. You can put your hands down. So you guys are experts in comfort. You're experts in comfort. Now, that's a weird thing for me to say to people who have been parents of little children, right? Because that's some of the most stressful, tenuous time of our existence. It's not so much that we're experienced in how to comfort or soothe our own self, but we're always obsessed with how to comfort and soothe our children. Can I get another amen on that? So if your child is crying, the tools you would likely use to try and comfort your child are, are a, a nook-nook. Does, does anybody... Some of you have heard of a nook-nook. Can I, can I get a show of hands if you've heard of a nook-nook? Okay, man, that's just sad. How about pacifier? That's, that's another word for nook-nook, okay? In the Midwest, we call that a binky. Is there anybody from the Midwest that recognizes that term? Yeah, all right, Sean. I see you back there, Dallas. God bless y'all, Bill Blake. I see you. So as a parent, this is like, this is like your, if you're going somewhere, you need a couple of things. Wipes, diapers, pacifier. Some of your kids may have had a blankie in the South. You call it a lovey sometimes, an item that's soothing and comforting. As Christians, so, so what happens when your child, it's like my kids, were, were, they're great kids. And every now and then we get one who's a little bit anxious or hadn't taken the right nap or doesn't feel great. And so we're at the restaurant and, the, and then the, you can feel it kind of come on as a parent. It's like the atmosphere shifts a little bit. It gets a little colder. Your palms start to sweat. Your heart starts to beat a little bit faster, your mouth starts to get dry, and you know one of the kids is going into the, into the zone. So all of a sudden now you're looking in pocket, you're looking in diaper bag, what are you trying to locate? The comfort item, whatever it is, and then the tears start to well in the eyes, and the cry begins to be elicited, uh, emanating from the mouth, and all of a sudden I'm, pacifier in. And what happens? 
comfort. Man, they're comforted by that. So immediately, their anxiety starts to lower. Your heart rate starts to go back into normal rhythm. Your clammy, sweaty palms and the perspiring forehead that you feel because it seems like everybody's eyes in the restaurant are on you. All of a sudden now, you're able to relax, enjoy your meal, and get through that time. Well, that, that should be kind of the same influence. Your awareness of the, the unity and love you have for the Lord Jesus Christ should bring into your own life. It should be something that reduces anxiety, that calms you. Paul's writing this from prison. He's in Rome. It's kind of an apartment. And he doesn't have any money. He's depending on the Philippian church to support him. And they send Epaphroditus, a guy that, that they love, who's their minister to him, to comfort him and console him. And he shares with them why he was already comforted and consoled. And it's because the love of the Lord Jesus Christ in his life that he's aware of. He goes on to say that we should have the same mindset as the mindset of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to try to do my best to explain to you what that means. I was on LegalZoom.com doing some research for this uh, sermon. LegalZoom.com has listed some um, really exceptional lawsuits that have been filed over the last 10 or 20 years. Now, I, I'm not, what I'm not trying to do is say these lawsuits are illegitimate or non-well-founded, okay? I'm going to bring this point home to you in a second, but I just want you to listen to this and get a sense for what's going on inside you as I tell you what these lawsuits are. February 92, a lady named Stella Liebeck is awarded $160,000 because she spilled her hot coffee from McDonald's on herself and suffered burns on 6% of her body. She's awarded $2.7 million additional dollars in punitive damages. In, in September of 1988, Gordon Falker and Greg Roach burned when, carpet, when a carpet adhesive container ignited that they had placed by a hot water heater when the heater kicked on that the container was sitting next to. This despite the container being clearly labeled flammable and keep away from heat. Gordon and Greg were awarded one, $8 million total for their troubles. In March of 1982, Ricky Bodine was stealing, he's a high school student, stealing a floodlight from a school where he attended. He lowered the floodlight down to his friends who were waiting for it at the bottom, for some reason ran back across the roof, fell through a skylight, and sued the school for damages. He was awarded $260,000 plus $1,200 per month for damages, about $1 million total over the course of his life. Lots of us in life have this same kind of attitude. It's my right. I'm entitled. It's about me. What can I get out of this? How can I benefit? The mindset of the Lord Jesus Christ is to take what is rightfully mine and sacrifice it for the benefit of somebody that would spit in my face. What a paradigm shift most of us would have to go through to adopt that same kind of mindset. Where I'm no longer consumed with what's rightfully mine and what I'm entitled to and what I can get and what makes my life easier. But instead I relinquish all those same things and I decide to look to the benefit and the interests of others regardless of the benefit to me. Jesus Christ who being in the form of God, this is what Paul says, 
thought equality with God not something to be used for his advantage, but instead became obedient and emptied himself out. He, he let go of all of his rights to become a man. And being made in the form of a man, he humbled himself even more, and he took on the form of a servant, and he became obedient into that form, even unto death. That's the mindset of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not making a statement on whether or not these cases were legitimate or not. I like to think that if tried in an American court of law, uh, justice was served. But what I'm talking about is you and who you see in the mirror and whose rights you're more concerned with. Because if it's not the rights of others, then don't come to complaining to me, Trent, I don't feel joyful in life. I don't feel happy. I don't feel encouraged. I don't feel comforted. No wonder you don't. Because you're not following through with the mindset of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's his mindset that Paul says the greatest joy can be found in. And if you're not doing that, then you better start. And until you're doing it, don't come asking me. The thought life of the Lord Jesus Christ, I will say, is one of complete and total discipline. This is an idea familiar to us in the teachings of the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5 says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought, making it obedience to Christ. This is the mindset of the truly committed Christian. To maintain every thought of even my mind, not based on what's rightfully mine, but how I can bless and serve others. Moving on in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes uh, how we can find joy in our behavior. Joy in our behavior. He says this in uh, Philippians 2 verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Listen to this, church. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in, in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and will rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. There are four things that the Apostle Paul says here in the second second third of Philippians 2. The first thing he says is to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Jesus says in John 14, 6 that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. This is not the Apostle Paul saying, look, find your salvation in whomever or however you want. We are saved when we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and we obey the gospel. What he's saying here is that you've been given a precious gift to be clothed in Christ. Don't act as though that gift is not worth anything, but in fear and trembling, act as though it is everything and do everything in life as though you're doing it out of obedience, submission, and surrender to that perfect gift. If I gave you a, a gold mine with riches untold and ground that had never been plowed, and I said, 
this is yours. Do with it what you choose. Are you a rich person until you begin to harvest the gold in the mine? In the mine? Maybe your mind has gold in it. Mine doesn't. No, you don't have any wealth until you begin to harvest and mine the gold from the mind. And so it is with our own salvation. It's not until we begin to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ in our every action do we get the opportunity to experience the blessings that come from that obedience. Paul then goes on to say, don't do anything, do nothing without grumbling or arguing. I want to draw your mind to a story in Numbers chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 29 and 30. Listen to this. Moses said to Obab, son of Ruel, the, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law. So Moses is speaking to his brother-in-law here, and he's telling Obab something important. He says, we are setting out for the place about which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Where are they going? They're going to the promised land. So in other words, Obab, get in line, man. We are headed to the land of promise, a land that flows with milk and honey. How could you refuse such an invitation? What does Obab do? Listen to this. Come with you, says Moses, and we will treat you well, for the Lord has promised good things to Israel. Obab answered, no, I will not go. I'm going back to my own land and to my own people. Why in the world would somebody refuse an invitation to inhabit the land of promise that flowed with milk and honey. If you had read the story of the Israelite kingdom before this, there are, there are people who grumble and complain. Every step of the way, it's some sort of whining or crying out, and God satisfies their need time and time again. And I think Obab is thinking at this point, I can't stand to listen to this one more second. All this grumbling and complaining and moaning after all the deliverance and all the blessing. And church family, some people that you're trying to have an influence on, some people that you're trying to get to obey the gospel and invite into the family of God are in, uninterested in what you have to say the same way Obab was uninterested in the direction the Israelites were going because of your grumbling and complaining and your arguing because of your negativity, because of your gossip, because you're saying one thing with your mouth, I love the Lord Jesus Christ, I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I love my neighbor as myself, but you're a grumbling, complaining, miserable adult that nobody would rather, that, that there'd be no other person they would rather not emulate than you. The Apostle Paul is in prison. He's been beaten, he's been flogged, he's been shipwrecked, he's been starved, he's been stranded. And still he maintains the attitude of don't do anything without thankfulness and gratitude. And instead do nothing with grumbling or complaining. So what does he have to say? Man, be silent. I like the thumper rule here. If you don't have anything nice to say, then don't say anything at all. The other thing we see here is that you should be simple he uses two words in this next piece that I want to talk about, blameless and pure. The word I want to talk about here is pure. It's a Greek word. It's akirios. This is the same word used by the Greeks in everyday conversation to refer to an unalloyed metal or wine unmixed with water. In other words, wherever the word akirios occurs, the Greek person reading the word would be thinking, what you see is what you get. And isn't that how we would define pure in our own lives? Trent's a pure guy. In other words, what you see in him is what you get. 
But, but it's important to discuss that it's not just purity of, of one school of thought or what one frame of mind. What's the subject that Paul is talking about here? Whose mindset is he telling you to be pure in? It's the mindset of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whose behavior is he calling you to emulate? It's the behavior of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what he's saying to you is that you should be a Christian who is simple and pure. When you say you're a Christian, your mindset, your being, and your behavior should align with Jesus Christ. What you say I should see should be what I do see. This is the same word. The reason I'm saying the word is simple here is in Romans 16, 19. It's the word ekyrios that's translated simple. Let me read to you here. For your obedience has come abroad unto all men. I am glad, therefore, on your behalf, but yet I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple ekyrios concerning evil. And he's talking to a highly complex society, and he's wanting to remember to keep it simple, silly. Be united with Christ in being. Be united with Christ in behavior. This last thing he mentions is the key. It's the crux to this whole deal. In the last part I read, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2.17 says this, Even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming for your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Do what? If you're being poured out like a drink offering, you're going to rejoice? Let me draw your mind to a text also in Numbers chapter 15. I'm going to read a few verses here. The Bible says this in Numbers 15 starting in verse 4. Person, then the person who brings an offering shall present to the Lord a grain offering of a tenth of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with a quarter hind of olive oil. With each lamb, so the grain offering, a quarter of a hind of olive oil. Which, which, with each lamb offering... Offered for the burnt offering or sacrifice, prepare a quarter of a hind of oil, oil as a drink offering. With a ram, prepare a grain offering of two-tenths of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with a third of a hind of olive oil. A third of a hind of wine is a drink offering, offered as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. In other words, what's here in Numbers, and this is what I want you to get from this, the greater the sacrifice the greater the drink offering. This is a scriptural precedent for the point I'm getting ready to make. The greater the sacrifice, the greater, greater the drink offering. For a grain offering, offer a quarter of wine. For a lamb offering, offer a, a half of wine. For a ox offering, offer three quarters of wine. As he goes in, as, as the writer increases, here it's Moses, in the quantity of the sacrificial offering, the drink offering also increases. And for the people during the Old Testament time when this is written, and for the Apostle Paul, the day he's writing this, for him, the greater the sacrifice, the greater the drink offering, and the greater the drink offering, the greater the joy. Can you imagine if the sin offering in my life required such a great sacrifice, and I brought it, and I was being forgiven? And everybody could tell by the quantity I was offering that I was being forgiven much. What would be going on inside of me? Man, through that sacrifice and forgiveness, there'd be joy. And there'd be a sense of celebration. And there'd be a sense of gratitude and thanks. And for Paul, that certainly is true. For him, the greater the sacrifice, the greater the joy. 
What he says to the Philippian church in the fourth chapter is rejoice always in every circumstance you can find cause for rejoice. As a matter of fact, he would say, the greater the sacrifice, the greater the joy. And if this principle applies to us today, then rather than move away from and be afraid of experiences and issues in life that cause us to want to sacrifice or to be forced to sacrifice, we should move towards them. We should give time to the children's ministry. Give up some weekends to encouraging our brothers and sisters in our Celebrate Recovery community. Give of our pocketbook to support the local church and our missions nationwide and worldwide. Let our heart truly be where our treasure is and let all of that be in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul's focus, church. Every breath of his being, he is focusing on Jesus. And he's sharing with them saying, look, should, should the sacrifice I'm making on your behalf cost everything? I'll rejoice. There are some of you out there that have gotten way consumed with the Christmas season and you're already off track. Some of you were off track before the season even started. You weren't joyful. You weren't excited. You weren't encouraged. Whatever the need is in your life, after I pray and while they sing, I pray you bring it before the Lord and let us encourage you and walk with you on whatever your need may be. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We ask a blessing on all those here today and we thank you for their presence here. Father, I pray if there are any here who have not obeyed the gospel that you would move in their heart and that they would respond. God, I ask that you would help us keep a vertical focus and not a horizontal one this holiday season. And if we can really do that, we'll be joyful not just this Christmas season, but we'll experience holiday joy every day. We love you. We thank you for Jesus and his grace and mercy. It's in his name we pray. Amen.